Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome everyone to another Pain Talk podcast. So we're going to jump right into this podcast to get things started. What we're going to do today is begin the introduction to a three-part podcast that looks at an approach to acute pain. And I'm going to pull in the expertise of the academic detailers, which are pharmacists who work with Dalhousie University. And it's an incredible group of individuals, as well as an incredible service that is provided to primary care practitioners. So this collaboration that I did with the academic detailers at Dalhousie included uh, pharmacist Pam McLean-Vesey and Natasha Rodney-Kale as well as the input of Edie Baxter, who is the primary care practitioner who is working closely with the academic detailers. What we want to do is look at three different cases that we pulled in that looked at the pharmacology primarily, but I want us to step back and promote a broader framework that we can use to help shape our approach to pain, recognizing that pain is unique to each individual and it's influenced not just by the physical dimension of what the individual is experiencing, but also by the social, psychological, and spiritual forces that shape all of our experiences. So let's dig into this podcast. It will be divided up into three different sections. Hopefully, it will be informative, and I will make some references that we'll attach to the podcast in case people want to read more. So what the objective was of this presentation that we did was to develop a case-based approach to acute pain. So we have three cases that we'll discuss in that pharmacology, as was mentioned. We're going to describe the factors contributing to pain chronification. Just to remind our listeners that pain chronification is that transition of acute pain moving on into chronic pain. And what we want to do is we want to be able to recognize who is at risk for this very complex and life-changing illness and how we can minimize and prevent that from occurring. We're going to look at some strategies and talking points that can reduce this risk but we're also going to report a very high-level summary of the evidence for the pharmacotherapy of acute pain as it applied to these cases. What you start to realize is that there is some huge challenges around the pharmacology. We need to put it into context so that we can give patients the information that they need to make an informed decision, recognizing that medication is limited but does have a role to see it as actually a tool. The goal of any kind of management of pain, in particular for acute management of pain, is to make pain more tolerable until tissue heals. As we know, pain is part of that alarm system that we all have that is essential for survival. So not only is it important to tell us when something's wrong, it's also important for us to protect tissue until that tissue heals. We also, as was mentioned, want to reduce the risk of the acute pain experience transitioning into that chronic pain experience. So if we look at that uh, broader framework that we can talk about in a few slides, but then look at an approach specific to supporting patients and helping them manage pain, the most important tool that we can use at the bedside is our talking points. So how we communicate pain, how we help patients understand what's going on, and how we allow them to express that experience for them. So not only is it a talking point, I would argue that there always there there is a component of listening that is really important as well. Then we can explore some interventions. We can look at alternative therapies, and then the fourth intervention is actually the pharmacotherapy. And from the pharmacotherapy, we want to look at risk stratification. 
not only from a substance use perspective, but also the risk of cognitive decline, the risk of falls, all those side effects that can be life-changing for patients as well. So any acutely painful condition can lead to chronic pain. So just to remind us, the definition of acute pain is the normal predicted physiological response to an adverse chemical, thermal, or mechanical stimulus. So it is that normal progression of pain that gets triggered by an injury, illness, surgery, or unknown trigger. It should follow a normal trajectory so that acute pain has purpose. It's there to protect. It's there to tell us when something's wrong. Chronic pain, on the other hand, is pain without biological value that has persisted beyond the normal tissue healing. So the process of acute pain transitioning to chronic pain is called pain chronification. And there is an excellent paper by B. Moreland et al., Pain Chronification, What Should a Non-Pain Medicine Specialist Know? And that is in current medical research and opinion. So I will put a link to that article. What are the factors that we know that can increase the risk of pain chronification? So there are three major groups that I like to talk about. One is what the patient brings. And I like to think of these as resiliency and vulnerability factors. And we've talked about those before. So these resiliency and vulnerability factors will differ for all individuals. And they're really about the life story of that person, the life experiences, and the habits and behaviors that they've used to get to that point in their life. So we're meeting that patient at a specific time in their life but they are bringing these resiliency and vulnerability factors to that experience. The second area of importance when we look at factors that increase are really how the patient experiences acute pain. And I'm going to expand on that in the next few slides because we want to know what are the factors that increase the risk or the amplification of that pain experience. And then the third area is our approach. So how do healthcare providers intervene? How do healthcare providers help patients transition through this and support them. With these three different factors coming together, what the patient brings, that's the resiliency and vulnerability, how they experience acute pain, and then what we do to help them transition through that will really inform whether or not they go on to develop pain chronification, which is chronic pain, or they get resolution of their pain, meaning that the pain comes down to zero on 10. So what are some of the factors that have been identified in the literature that increase pain and the risk of pain chronification. By far the worst, the most powerful uh, factor is what we call worst case scenario thinking. This is often referred to as catastrophizing, but I like to think of catastrophizing as fear-based. So the fear that patients can bring to that experience based on their resiliency and vulnerability factors. So there may be some brain memory there around trauma. There may have been previous family members who have experienced significant pain that that person on an unconscious level will remember. So fear becomes a huge driver. If that patient has pre-existing anxiety and or depression, that also can be a factor that increases pain and pain chronification. Also, how long that pain lasts. So we know that chronic pain is pain that persists beyond that three-month window So most healing of tissue should occur within that six-week window. Obviously, there are going to be some challenges for every individual, but generally, the human condition can heal within that six-week time period. The other factor can be what we call cumulative factors. So this is somebody who has surgery, goes on to develop an infection from that surgery. So it's kind of layer on top of a layer because we know that the normal body response to infection is an escalation in pain. So you can see how these factors 
can actually start to change that alarm system, which is centrally in that limbic system. So that fight, flight, or freeze area. There's about six different structures within the brain that make up the limbic system, but primarily that limbic system is that primitive part of our brain that is really designed to pay attention and to listen to pain. But it's also an area of our brain that is designed to pay attention to that anxiety experience that we can have. The other factor that can increase pain and pain chronification is if the patient feels that we are not listening. And this can be a really tricky thing because I may feel as a healthcare provider that I am listening to the patient and I may be providing information to that patient, but that patient is not ready to hear what I'm saying. And so from their perspective is that we're not listening to them and we're not really hearing what they're saying. So there can be that discrepancy that sometimes is very hard to acknowledge. I know I have to work on that because sometimes when I'm having interactions with patients, I just really feel it's so important not only to validate their suffering, but to provide them some information around what probably is happening and why their pain is not getting better, but getting worse. But the challenge really is the patient ready to hear that information. So that can feed into that not believed or feeling that their problem has been minimized. Remember we talked about that fear-based motivator or worst case scenario thinking, well, the antidote or the remedy to that fear is actually promoting safety. So we talk about a trauma-informed approach for patients, and you'll see this more and more into the conversations that we have around pain. So what a trauma-informed approach is really is about promoting safety. And if you look at a broader context around safety is promoting safe movement to the pa- The movement itself feels safe to the patient. So if you have somebody with a low back pain, the idea of walking 15 minutes twice a day may be very, very threatening to their pain system. So you may want to start at a place where the patient feels safe with that activity. So maybe that activity is just standing up, using something like a walker or something like walking sticks to support them so that they feel safe getting up, trying to get into that upright position. So you wanna promote movement that feels safe to the patient and every patient is gonna be different. We wanna use safe talking points. So we wanna give the patient hope that pain is there to protect the tissue It's there to tell us when something's wrong. And the reality is, is that the normal pain trajectory is that pain will get better. So that's an important thing. So giving patients some hope in those talking points and not creating a situation where, you know, that they're going to feel more fear. And another area that I find often happens is that we tell patients that, well, you know what, you have degenerative disc disease, degenerative arthritis, you're just going to have to get used to it. Well, when we do that, it really creates a sense of hopelessness for the patient. Because guess what? We are all getting degenerative disease and degenerative arthritis. That is often not the reason why patients are getting significant pain. So we need to help patients understand that it's not just about the degenerative disease. It's about other aspects of their, whether it's muscle injury, whether it's particular movement. And I'll give you an example. I was trying to figure out why I was getting so much knee pain and realized it was more about how I was driving my standard. So seeing the pain as a communication, trying to help patients understand. So especially with back pain, one of the biggest triggers for back pain is if we're having to sit for long periods of time. That sitting position is by far the hardest on the discs as well as on the lower back. And COVID has kept us really isolated. So people don't normally have their regular routines or their activities. So creating a safe space where you might see that is... And I'll give an example in the space that I work in. If you have somebody who's been involved in a car accident, 
even though it may not be a major car accident to that patient, the experience could be terrifying. So I need that patient to know that we're going to we're going to take care of them, that that we've got their back, that we're going to help them uh, manage this, and we'll take care of them. So creating that environment that feels safe to them and that you have their back. The last one is safe prescribing. And when I talk about safe prescribing, it's really trying to minimize the risk of falls, increasing the risk of cognitive decline, which is confusion, increasing, you know, safe prescribing to reduce the risk of causing pain. One of the side effects or complications of opioids is they can actually cause pain. And then the last one, obviously, that we think about is is when we think about substance use disorder. So if we take the step back in terms of our approach and look at a framework, a general framework, the most important step is by listening to the patient's pain story. So what was the mechanism of their injury? Because mechanism is really important, but also letting them talk to you about that story. Acknowledge suffering. So that means we need to let the patient know that no one knows their pain, only them, and that we believe them. Even if investigations are normal, it doesn't make the pain any less severe or significant to that patient. And I want to make sure that I'm going to examine them carefully. Because what I'm looking for is new pathology or progression of a pre-existing disease. So those first three steps in that framework, listening to their pain story, acknowledging suffering, and examining them carefully are really important. Then I get into that approach. So that approach around the talking points, interventional therapies, alternative therapies, and then pharmacotherapy. We often talk about those as being pharmacological and non-pharmacological therapies. The last step is the risk stratification that we talked about. And we want to make sure that we're protecting patients around our prescribing, but also around the information that we're giving around uh, movement. And we want to manage this risk by mapping, especially around high-risk pharmacology. So mapping, if you want to remember in previous podcasts, is we want to monitor the use of high-risk pharmacology for aberrancy. So aberrancy is really if the patient is starting to run out early, doubling up, or maybe diverting the medication, or combining it with high-risk pharmacology. We want to adjust immediately if there is aberrancy, and we want to prescribe using principles of harm reduction. One of the other things that is so important as well when we look at the intervention is that we want to address these pain-protective behaviors. There is a normal response to pain that humans have. Not only do we pay attention, and not only does our tissue protect that area, is that sometimes we can get into what we call a pain protective behavior. This is where we can get into a pain tuck. So what happens is that we're starting to come forward. And just that maneuver alone, our tissue will carry an extra 45 pounds of weight. So it is important to find adjuncts or supports that are going to help to get patients upright. It's really interesting to see these new upright walkers that are out there because in principle, it makes a lot of sense. Now, it's going to be very hard to get a patient upright who's also struggling with a condition called spinal stenosis, and that we'll talk about spinal stenosis in another podcast. You'll also see protective behaviors where patients will avoid certain movements, and where we see this classically is in the knee. So what will happen is the patient will, will come into the emergency room or come into your office refusing to bend that knee. Now, it is important to make sure that there's no meniscal tear in that knee, but the history can often help you with that. So these are patients that can actually lock their knees. How you can decide whether or not they're bending or not is just get them to sit down. And sometimes when they're sitting down, there will be a little bit of a bend there. But that need to protect may be very strong that they don't want to bend that knee at all. And we just need to remind ourselves that this is driven by fear. It's driven by the need to protect. It's also driven by that need for survival, which is part of that limbic system. 
So in general, if we're looking at the talking points and how we're communicating, we've covered a lot of areas there. We want to promote optimism and hope in our talking points so that that pain has a normal trajectory. We want to promote a function-centered approach versus a pain-centered approach. So rather than asking the patient, you know, how is your pain today? You might say, look, today you were able to get up to the bathroom. Yesterday you weren't able to get up to the bathroom. So helping them understand that there are things that they're doing around mobility that may have not been their pre-pain mobility, but they're starting to move in that, in that functional direction. We can use pacing to change the focus. So rather than say 15 minutes twice a day, you can actually say, look, all I want you to do is to walk for 30 seconds in one direction, 30 seconds in the other direction. And if that's too much, then maybe standing is all you need to do for now. But to do that three or four times a day. So plan that time when you're going to stand up. We know that when patients uh, start to, to become more inactive, when they're not moving and when they're disconnecting, that their pain will actually elevate. And there's a reason for that. If you think about a tribe mentality, so that limbic area or that primitive brain is really still functioning since the dawn of time. So humans are, in terms of their survival, it was necessary for them not only to be connected, but to also be moving together as a group. So if we become disconnected and we stop moving, that actually escalates the alarm because from the brain's perspective, you're more vulnerable to predators. So if you get left behind and you're not moving, you're going to get eaten. So it, obviously in 2020, it doesn't seem to make, doesn't hold the same value. But the reality is, is that primitive brain, brain or that unconscious brain is still functioning like it would uh, from the dawn of time. We have another area of our brain that is much more uh, mature and evolved, which is the prefrontal cortex. And this is where things get very mindful, right? They're more mindful. They make more sense. The fastest way to get from that limbic system to that prefrontal cortex is through our breathing. So anytime a patient uh, is not improving, especially with acute pain, you always want to reevaluate if recovery stalled. So I use this saying in our uh, advanced cardiac life support. So a change in the patient, change in the, the monitoring of that patient, always go back to the beginning. So going back to hearing their story, listening to their pain story, acknowledging the suffering, and then examine them again. Because what can happen are some complications related to the healing process. And in one of these cases, a great example is a patient who's had surgery, who's about two weeks out, pain is actually getting worse. So that's a patient that we always want to make sure that there's nothing new. But even in your back pain patient, they could have a disc that in itself is not the issue, but if, which is going laterally. But if that disc is coming centrally and causing some concerns around red flags, so cotoquina, then we need to be able to pick that up because that patient needs another intervention at that time. So that's where the pain system is actually sh is, is behaving the way it should. So when normal healing happens, pain should get better over time. But if there's something else going on, the first communication that we have is often the pain starts to get worse. And you'll see this with infections. The first symptom that starts to happen is the patient starts to get pain or they start to get an unpleasant experience. Because sometimes patients don't like to say pain, but if you say to them, is that feeling unpleasant, they'll often say yes. And that's really how the pain system works. Just a few pharmacological therapy uh, pearls that I'll just mention before we get into the cases. We want to promote realistic role of pharmacotherapy. The goal of medication is not to take their pain away. We also want to look at these high-risk pharmacology, especially opioids, which are very, very effective in acute pain. But we want to consider their use as an adjunct, not as the primary therapy. We want to avoid dual active opioids. So what I mean by that is when you think of something like tile number three, which is acetaminophen, caffeine, and codeine, 
These are, are opioids that are actually in combination. And sometimes if patients are having complications or start to escalate their use, they can get into more problems, especially around uh, a Tylenol overdose. And that can be quite impactful to their liver. So I would separate out the acetaminophen and the codeine. It's the same thing with oxycodone or Percocet. You would separate out your acetaminophen from your oxycodone. We also want to minimize opioids that contribute to euphoria or energy in a vulnerable brain. So most patients that are using opiates for pain will not talk about euphoria. They'll often talk about energy. Those patients that are using opiates in a non-medical use will often refer to them as giving them euphoria or disconnection. So the energy piece can be important because the part of the brain that's getting stimulated is that pleasant center versus the pain center. So you can actually have a benefit from both, both from managing the pain, but also giving you that energy boost. And opioids that are more prone to this are hydromorphone and oxycodone. So vulnerable brains, as we've discussed in the past, are usually brains that are young. So 85% of all addiction will happen under the age of 18 90% under the age of uh, 35. So I tend to use non-euphoric opiates in younger age groups that would include morphine or codeine and probably use the more energy euphoric for the older age group. And and, and in that as well, I want to prescribe a limited prescription, so limited to three days. So one of the questions that would come up is, well, that's a pain in the butt because if I've got a patient who is a surgical patient and the 15, you know, the 15 tablets that I've prescribed are not working and they're going to come back, but it might take two to three weeks for them to come back to, to see their physician. What you can do is a partial fill. So you dispense a small amount each time so that if the patient is not leaving a lot of these pills at home, because the evidence tells us that on average, patients take about 10 tablets of the opioid that's prescribed perioperatively. So this way, the pills are at the pharmacy. They're not at the patient's home where they can get left into a cupboard and somebody who's young in that home can have access to them. So the final slide before we get into the cases is that I want you to think about this. I love this saying. Um, this was a, that I picked up in a podcast and we've talked about this previously. I've kind of changed it a bit. But evidence is possibility. It only has power if we use it. So that's a powerful statement in itself. But here's the thing we also have to recognize is that it only has power if we're ready to use it. And that applies to us as clinicians, as well as patients. And it only has power if we know how to use it. This also applies to us as well as to the patient. So evidence is possibility. It only has power if we are ready to use it and know how to use it. So I'll talk about the first case and then we'll end at that. And I'll let you think about that. And we'll bring back the academic detailers to help us kind of navigate through the pharmacotherapy. We will apply our general approach as well as our framework to each of these cases to show you how you might use it. So the first case is a great case. And this was actually, these are all real cases. So one of the hazards of COVID is that people are actually wearing these masks and they're steaming up their glasses. So this was a 60-year-old female who had type 2 diabetes and hypertension. She was on metformin. She's also getting a ACE inhibitor. She had her mask fogged up her glasses and she tripped and rolled her ankle and landed hard on her left flank. So the x-ray shows that she's got a non-displaced fracture of her proximal fifth metatarsal. So that is her little toe that goes near her midfoot. 
So it's very uncomfortable and she's got rib contusions and she tells you that, look, this just takes my breath away. So how would we approach this real case? We'll look at it from the framework. So obviously we're going to acknowledge that this really sucks. It sucks big time because not only is she going to have difficulty walking, is that what often happens to this chest trauma is they have difficulty breathing. So if you think about those pain protective behaviors, our desire to kind of come forward I'm going to get you just to try this yourself. So stand up straight, bring your shoulders back, and then move your arms up and take those deep breaths, moving your neck, and then come forward in a tuck and just see how limited that is. So this is a really important condition that we have to find a way to support patients getting those shoulders back until that tissue heals because it will get better as time goes on. And so the pain protective behaviors are really important with this type of injury. The other piece that's really important is that with this type of fracture, she won't need to be casted, but she may need to have some support to stabilize that fracture until it starts to heal. So we'll end there. We'll pick it up with the academic detailers and we'll bring these cases back in as we discuss the pharmacotherapy. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.